0: I'm uh, delighted to be able to dive into God's Word with you once again. It's always a great pleasure to me to to be able to do this, Um, and the teacher always gets the greatest blessing, I think. Uh, We're going to spend the next four Sundays looking at four critical ways in which we are to follow Christ's lead, to do toward others as He has done toward us. Uh, This This series came about as an amplification of a message that I did back in April on forgiving others as Christ has forgiven us. And in fact, that's one of these four messages, but I'm going to take that one and rework it so it's not just the same thing that I did before. As I was uh, working on that message, it became very apparent to me from God's Word that His instruction to us about serving and about loving others as Christ has loved us, follows a very similar pattern to his instruction regarding forgiveness. In all three cases, the foundation of of what he commands to us is his own character and example. Now, when Jesus gave these commands to his disciples about loving, about forgiving, about serving others as he did for them, he did it in such a way that it really shook up the disciples. It took their logic and it kind of stood that logic on its head. It, it, it surprised them the way he explained these things to them. These things are supposed to shake us up as well. These are not minor issues. The, the messages, the ideas that Christ presents to us in the passages we're going to look at are... Uh, in a word, revolutionary. The first three messages in this series are very much interwoven with each other. Uh, They go hand in hand as outworkings of the character of Christ. Loving, serving, and forgiving, not in that order. Uh, As Christ has loved, served, and forgiven us. The fourth message, trusting Jesus—excuse me, trusting the Father as Jesus trusted the Father—is really the um, it's the heart of the how-to. It tells us how we are able to put into practice those things that Christ commanded us about loving, serving, and forgiving. Again, the things that we're going to be talking about are powerful. To the extent that you do them, rather than merely hearing them, they will radically transform your relationships. They will destroy bitterness and replace it with joy. These simple instructions put into practice will eradicate fear and frustration and replace it with peace and power. They'll move you from a life of directionless, powerless reaction to to godly, powerful action and purposefulness. One of the greatest proving grounds, of course, for everything that we're going to talk about in these next few weeks is marriage. Christian marriage is the stage upon which God intends to display the nature of Christ's relationship with his church. It's the relationship that most persistently tests the metal, the quality of the believer's life and exposes his true character. So we're going to talk a fair amount about marriage. Now, I said that these truths will radically transform your relationships. For, for many of you in this group, they already have. Uh, if you've already learned in some measure to follow Christ in these foundational ways, then God is already using you as a beacon to draw others toward his way and toward his son. If that's you, that's great. And if that's you, then I'm convinced that God's appeal to you as we go through this series is essentially the same as Paul's appeal to the church at Thessalonica. That young church was doing quite well. Uh, it, there's more praise that Paul gives to that church than rebuke. And yet he says to them over and over, excel still more. Press on. There's no place for complacency for us who are called to conformity with Christ. We're called to a perfect standard and we won't complete that assignment this side of heaven. So I hope these messages at the very least will stir you up by way of reminder about those things that you already know to be life indeed. Now John 13 lays out the events that occurred on the evening of the Passover meal celebration. In fact, everything that happens between John chapter 13 and John chapter 16, really chapter 17 occurs in one uh in one day, one evening. Passover occurred on twilight uh, at twilight in the evening on the 14th day of the 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 uh the month of Nisan. On that day it was hours before it was actually just hours before Judas would betray Jesus and he would be arrested by the officers of the temple and by a Roman cohort of almost 500 soldiers. But before that happened, Jesus gathered his disciples in an upstairs room in Jerusalem to tell them some exceedingly important things. Things that they would need to know when he was no longer physically with them. Verse 1 tells us that Jesus very clearly knew that his time had come, the time for which he came. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And actually, if you back up just a little bit to chapter 12, In verse 27 and 28, Jesus said, Now my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for for this purpose I came to this hour. Father, glorify thy name. There came, therefore, a voice out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Jesus knew exactly what was about to happen and he came in order for it to happen. On this Passover evening, Jesus rose from supper after eating the Passover meal with his disciples. He laid aside his outer garments, he wrapped himself up with a towel, and he began washing his disciples' feet. Now this is what a dear friend that many of us know would call the upside-down kingdom. Jesus completely turned the disciples' expectation on, on, its, on their head. You see, in the culture of that day, touching someone's feet was considered one of the most demeaning things that you could do. If you lived in, this, in that day, uh, you wore sandals, not shoes and socks, not Nikes. And most of the streets and walkways were made of dirt, the same dirt over which horses and oxen traveled. So your feet stayed really dirty. In fact, sometimes your feet got downright crusty. And to touch or even look at the bottoms of a person's feet was considered demeaning. To expose your feet, the bottoms of your feet for someone else to look at, was considered a a grievous insult. And that's still true today in Middle Eastern cultures. People wear long robes, and they when they sit, they, their robes cover their feet. If they sit on the floor, they point their feet inward so that no one can see the bottoms of their feet. The Bible records numerous instances in which the master of a household provides water for a visitor to use to wash his own feet. I've got a long list of them. I won't read them out to you, but there's several in Genesis and Judges. In households that had servants, the lowliest level of servants, typically maid servants, were given the task of washing the feet of their masters and of their masters' guests. But apart from John 13, there is no instance in the Bible in which the master of a household or anyone in any position of authority or honor ever washed another person's feet. It simply was not done. Now, the the dynamic of the disciples' interaction with Jesus is an amazing thing here. It seemed that any time any of them was even thinking about something that questioned Jesus' words or actions, while the thought was still forming in their mind, Peter was already saying it. And this was no exception. As Jesus prepares to wash the disciples' feet, Peter says to him. Lord, do you wash my feet? He's saying, Master, Teacher, Christ, how can you wash my feet? How can you demean yourself to do such a thing? Jesus' answer at first was pretty gentle. He said, what I do you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter, not to be sidetracked by a little rebuke from God in the flesh, expressed himself more forcefully. He said, never shall you wash my feet. At which point Jesus answered him with a simple declaration that cries out through the corridors of time to all men. If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, Peter, sensing that he was losing this, this argument, attempted to mitigate the severity of Christ's uh, self-humiliation by saying, Lord, okay, then, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. If you're going to wash the the most demeaning part of me, then at least wash the parts that are of greater honor. But Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. Now, obviously, at first glance, that sounds like Jesus is saying, Okay, you're clean, but your feet are still a problem, and I'm going to fix that. But we see in the very next verse that when Jesus said, Not all of you are clean, he was referring to Judas, who was about to betray him. He meant not everyone in this room is clean. Now, it's worth noting that Jesus declared here that the believing disciples were already clean before the cross. The death of Christ occurred in space and time, but its impact is timeless. The saving work of Jesus Christ in that one point in time is applied across the ages to everyone who believes the promise of God, whether he believes before the cross or after the cross. The believing disciples were already clean. So Jesus was making a point through the ceremony, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. Now, Peter made a couple of big mistakes here, but he got one thing very right. He was right in assuming that it was demeaning for the king of glory to be washing his feet. Peter had come to understand and confess long before this day, as recorded in Matthew 16, that Jesus was, in fact, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Peter knew what that meant. The Christ was the anointed one of God. He was the promised king in the line of David. The king of kings and the Lord of lords who would come and who would reign in perfect righteousness and perfect justice forever So it was understandable that Peter had an issue with Jesus washing his feet. It violated everything that he knew. But Peter got a couple of things seriously wrong. First, he assumed that he understood this situation better than Jesus did. He had a habit of doing that. It was as if he was saying to Jesus, Wait a minute, Lord, you don't understand what's going on here. Let me sort this out for you. Do you ever do that? I do. Do you ever presume that God is missing something? Every time that you do, you'll be wrong. We're going to talk a lot more about that in the fourth message, about trusting, as, trusting the Father as Jesus trusted For now, suffice it to say that Jesus didn't need Peter to clarify anything for him. Peter's second mistake was in thinking that foot washing was the whole issue here. He got all hot and bothered about what was in effect a symbolic act, not realizing that the symbol paled by comparison with that which it pictured. When Jesus told Peter in verse 7... What I do now you do not realize, but you shall understand hereafter. He was talking about what was coming upon Peter and the other disciples very, very quickly. When the resurrected Christ appeared to them just a few days later, a lot of things would become very clear. And later this same evening, after telling the disciples all that's recorded in John chapter 13 through 16, and after praying the incredible prayer, the incomparable prayer that's recorded in John 17, Jesus finished the work that had been given to him by his Father to do on our behalf, the work for which he had come. He let himself be arrested, viciously tortured, beaten, nailed to a cross and forsaken by his father to bear the eternal debt for us whom he had come to save and to serve. You see, washing the disciples' feet was nothing compared with what Jesus was about to do for them and for us. That's what Jesus was getting at when he told Peter in verse 8, if I do not wash you, You have no part with me. He was telling Peter in forceful terms that unless he, Jesus, went to the cross and paid the penalty for Peter's sin, Peter could have nothing to do with him. Jesus was soon to ascend to the right hand of the Father and no one who bears the stain, the uncleanness of his sin will ever stand in that place. And Jesus is saying the same thing to you. If you have not trusted him as your one and only Savior, he says to you, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. And there's something we must not miss about how Jesus chose to communicate this all-important truth. You see, it would have been considered an act of commendable hospitality if Jesus had simply brought basins of water to the disciples on that evening and let them wash their own feet. That's what the master of the household typically did. But Jesus was making a point by how he handled this. His point was that the real cleansing that he was about to provide to them could not be something that they did for themselves. It could not be something that God simply facilitated the true washing away of our sins is something God must do entirely or it will not be done. If you're here today and you don't know where you'll spend eternity, and I'm talking to the kids too, let me be very clear about something. God will not meet you halfway. He says in no uncertain terms that you are utterly incapable of taking even a single step toward Him. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, There is none righteous, not even one. Verse 10 and following. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. We don't need God to facilitate our salvation. We need God to save us. Unless he does it all, you will remain, as we all begin, eternally lost and dead in your sins. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. So Jesus' first purpose in what he did here was to teach the disciples, very straightforwardly, that in order for them to be truly clean before God, he had to be the one who washed them of their sins. He knew that he was hours away from being crucified, so he showed them and he told them in a way that fully engaged their senses why he had to go to the cross in their place. There was no other way for his disciples to be clean in the eyes of God and there is no other way for anyone to be clean in the eyes of God. But Jesus was also teaching them something else. Something that they would need to know in order to act as his ambassadors after he was resurrected and ascended to the Father. Something they would very much need to know in order to live the joyful and purposeful life for which he had come to save them. In John chapter 13 and verses 12 and following, Jesus lays out that second purpose. After he washed their feet, He laid aside his towel. He took up his robe again. And then he reclined at table with them. And I I suspect that at that point they were all wondering what was going to happen next. And he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you are right, for so I am. If I then the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you all should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. A slave is not greater than his master. Our master and Savior, Jesus Christ, humbled himself. He demeaned himself to serve his disciples. And he intended for them and for us to serve others in the same way. That's why he said, I gave you an example that you should do as I did. Now, I feel compelled at this point to at least briefly address the question, should foot washing be a ceremony that we practice as a ritual in the church as part of our worship? Now, I don't want to distract from the point of this powerful passage to to dive deeply into that question, but I will say I do not believe that Jesus was instituting an ongoing observance in the form of foot washing. Unlike baptism and the Lord's Supper, there is no record in Acts or in any of the epistles of foot washing having been practiced as part of the worship of the church. In fact, the only other mention of foot washing in the whole rest of the New Testament is in 1 Timothy chapter 5 in a passage that speaks about the qualifications for a widow to be supported financially by the body of Christ. And it says, as a mark of true hospitality, the widow who washes the saint's feet is one who shows herself to be, to be a person of, of humility and of service. But there's no case in which it's practiced as part of the worship. But it's this passage itself that most convinces me that Jesus wasn't instituting Uh, a new observance for the church to practice. Because right after Jesus says in verse 15, I gave you an example that you should also do as I do, he immediately broadens the context and goes way beyond foot washing. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. He's talking about service as a way of life. He's not talking about a ceremony. When Jesus commanded the disciples to follow his example, he was telling them to serve one another in humility and love in all things, not just in the realm of dirty feet. I believe his command here is is similar to his statement to the disciples after he taught them the, the parable about the Good Samaritan. And then he said to them, Now, Go and do the same. He didn't mean just do what the Samaritan did in that specific case. He meant to to have that kind of compassion and to be that kind of neighbor. In this simple ceremony and in what he says to them immediately afterward, Jesus was radically reorienting the disciples' understanding about honor. You see, in the culture in which they lived, honor was everything. The honor that you received from other men determined your value in society. And Peter, of course, saw Jesus as the one most worthy of honor. In that, he was correct. But he freaked out when Jesus set aside that honor to wash his feet. Jesus was saying something that went right to the heart of why he came. Because in his first incarnation, he said... He did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20:28. 20, Jesus' sole concern during his years on this earth the first time he came was not his honor but his father's honor. He said that over and over. Jesus came from heaven to earth not merely to show us the way, but to be the way. And in order to fulfill that mission, He had to set aside the honor that He alone among men deserves. How much more then must we abandon clinging to any sense of honor due to us? Jesus died on the cross, and in doing so, He threw away our idol, of self-exaltation. He threw it into the ash heap. And he proves to us that the only honor that matters is God's honor. That anything God fills our hands to do, no matter how demeaning, no matter how demeaning, gives us the only reputation that will ever matter. And that is our reputation as bondservants of the living God. If the one alone who is worthy of all honor and praise humbled himself to bear our sin and shame on the cross, then there is nothing that God can ask of us that will ever be too demeaning. And let me rephrase that as a question. Will God ever require you to do anything as humiliating, as demeaning as he required his own son to do for you? No. No. we can't even comprehend the humiliation that Jesus Christ endured for us. Hebrews 12.2 says, We are to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, despising the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When that verse says that Jesus despised the shame that he bore for you and me, I take that as an immeasurable understatement. The Lord of glory, the King of kings, the creator and the sustainer of all that is, the one who existed in the form of God, co-equal from all eternity with the Father and the Holy Spirit, in perfect love and unity and and communion, left the glory of heaven and emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself... Being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Nothing that you ever do for another human being will even come close to requiring the humility that 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 one act required. And it's critically important that we see the service that God commands of us in that perspective. What does it mean in practical terms to, to... Follow Jesus' example of servanthood. To serve others as we have been served by him. First, it means that you abandon your own self interest. You entrust your well being to God and you don't give it another thought. When you genuinely serve somebody, you don't do it for yourself in any sense. You don't concern yourself with what you're going to get back. In order to save you from the eternal penalty of your sin, Jesus set aside his own well-being. And that's the assignment that he gives to us. Philippians 2, of course, Jesus said, or, or Paul said, Have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. He is our example in all things. Turn to Romans 15 for just a minute first three verses. Now we who are strong, Romans 15, 1, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not please ourselves. By the way, my translation has the word just in italics, not just please ourselves. That word is not there in the Greek. Literally, the verse says, We are strong, ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength, and not to please ourselves. Verse 2 Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to his edification. For even Christ did not please himself. It doesn't say Christ did not just please himself. It says he did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached thee fell upon me. Jesus bore the full weight of our insult, our affront to God, even as he bore the full penalty for our sin. And the agony that he voluntarily suffered in doing so is infinitely greater than anything any other man will have to suffer. So when you serve, you don't do it for what you will get back. You do it for the benefit of the person you're serving and for the glory of God, period. You don't enter into the equation. Husbands, does your wife owe it to you to respect you and to submit to your final decisions? Absolutely Not. She owes it to God to respect you and to submit to your decisions. But she owes nothing to you. You're just another sinner saved by grace, just like she is. You both deserve nothing but eternal condemnation, just like I do. Your assignment before God is not to get your wife to treat you the way God says she's supposed to treat you to respect you and submit to your leadership. Your assignment before God as a husband is to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You owe that to God, not to her. Your debt is to him. Jesus didn't say, by the way, I washed your feet, so now you have to wash mine. He said, I washed your feet, now you go and wash one another's. You see, reciprocation is the world's line of logic, not God's. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. That's not God's way of thinking. That is not God's commission to you and me. Jesus said, I, the Master, washed your feet, now wash one another's. It is not about getting anything in return for our efforts. It's about serving others as you have been served by Jesus Christ. That's the deal. That explains everything about service. It's about doing what is pleasing to God regardless of the outcome, regardless regardless of the impact on you. Husband, if you say to men or to God that your wife isn't doing what she's supposed to be doing, so you can't be expected to love her or serve her anymore, God's response is not sympathetic. There is no place in the word of God where he gives quarter to that line of thinking. No place. God is not impressed with your plight because what Jesus did for you makes your complaint infinitely petty. God didn't put you in marriage to get something from your wife. He didn't condition His command to you to love your wife as Christ loved the church on her response to that love. He commanded you to love your wife and sacrificially serve her because Jesus Loved you and poured out his life's blood to save you, to redeem you. And Jesus certainly did not condition his sacrifice for you on the quality of your response. If he had, we would all be eternally dead. Wife, does your husband owe it to you to love you as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Absolutely not. He owes those things to God, but never to you. Your assignment from God is not to get him to do his assignment from God. I pray that you hear this. Your assignment from God is not to get your spouse to do his or her assignment from God. If that's where your focus is, then you're sinning and you're doing damage to your most important human relationship. But above all, you're doing damage to your relationship with God. Wives, if you say to God or to men, I'm done serving and submitting to this guy. He doesn't deserve my respect. I will not let myself be a rug for him to walk on. I say to you, God is not impressed. Jesus was mocked by fools. He was spat upon. His brutal execution was a public spectacle, and he did that for you when you were his enemy. I'm not saying that there's never a time to get out of the house for a while, that there's physical abuse or something like that going on. But before you say to God, God, you're asking too much of me to put up with this guy, you need to take a a very long, hard look at what he required of his one and only son for your sake. And this goes to the issue of why people marry in the first place. You don't get married to meet your needs. You certainly don't have kids to meet your needs. If you do, you're in for a big disappointment. God is your one and only source of provision and security. Every good thing and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You get married and you have kids to pour your life into somebody else's, to be a servant. To minister to and to serve others in a way that is more pervasive and more constant and more profound than will ever be the case in any other relationships in your life. If you get married and have children in order to fill a void within yourself, you'll do serious damage to those relationships unless, unless the day comes that you get over yourself. If you marry and have children in order to give freely and unconditionally of the love that God has poured out to overflowing in your own heart, in your own life, through Jesus Christ, then you'll have marriages that are deeply blessed and honoring to God and you'll be used by God to build eternally good things into the lives of your children and guess what, you'll enjoy it. in John 13:17 Jesus says to his disciples if you know these things you are blessed if you do them man that's a statement that verse is a life-changing statement you want to know real blessing in your life then stop worrying about yourself and be a servant. Do what he's telling you to do in this passage. When you figure out that you deserve nothing and you set yourself to be about serving others as you have been served by Christ, then you discover the joy of the Lord and the blessedness that belongs to you as his child. If you spend your life trying to protect and provide for yourself, then you miss that blessing. First, serving others as Jesus served you means that you abandon your own self-interest, your own well-being. It's not that your well-being is irrelevant. It's that God is the one who's going to take care of it, so you don't have to worry about it anymore. Again, we'll talk a lot about that in the fourth message. Secondly, you abandon justice for yourself in this life. A very practical ramification of serving others as Jesus has served you is that you don't ever get to get even. In fact, you don't even get to be concerned about getting even. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 for a minute. This is going to be the, the key passage for the fourth message, but I want to touch on it here. I'll keep popping into this mic. I think maybe next time I'll let you duct tape that other one to my face. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23. This whole section of the, of the uh, first epistle of Peter is about submission, about willing submission. And the example, as in all things, is Jesus Christ. Verse 21, you've been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps who committed no deceit, nor was any no sin, no, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus, he gave no concern to his own well-being or, or to justice. He was insulted. He was reviled. And he absolutely did not revile in return. If you go a little further down in chapter 3 and verse 8, it says, To sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. I'm still in First Peter here, 3, 8, and 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. Your destiny is to spend the rest of eternity plumbing the depths of the surpassing riches of God's kindness to you in Jesus Christ. So you are free to serve other people. Your well-being is not at issue And you don't have to worry about getting even with anybody. Serving Christ as he served us, serving other people as Jesus served us, means that we don't worry about justice. We don't concern ourselves, in fact, with how other people treat us at all. That's revolutionary. That is not the world's way of thinking. Instead, we focus on treating others as Jesus treated us, with no strings attached. Because we know that if Jesus put any strings on it, we'd be dead forever. It's very simple. Sin is complex. Righteousness is simple. As we do this, our lives become a purposeful, deliberate, and richly blessed action rather than an out-of-control series of reactions. We live and we act from a place of profound strength rather than flailing about from a place of pathetic weakness. And countless decisions in our lives that would otherwise be confusing and elusive suddenly become crystal clear. It is exceedingly freeing to die to self. So, in practice, serving Jesus, serving others as Jesus served us And serving him in the process means that we abandon our own self-interest. We abandon any pursuit of justice for ourselves. And thirdly, it means that you abandon control over your life and your resources. We don't get to call the shots. You cannot be a servant if you want to be in charge of your own life. I'm a control freak by wiring. But that has to be set aside for God's purposes. To put it the way my dear brother Paul Lockheed puts it, you can't be a servant on your schedule. God sets the schedule. God calls the shots. If you're not open to God changing your plans on a very regular basis, then you can't be his bondservant and you can't serve others as Christ has served you. That includes your time, your money, your priorities, everything. It's all his to do with as he sees fit. Get over yourself. My kids hate it when I say that. Get over yourself. It's not about you. It's about him. Is your life about serving others as an act of service to God? Or is your life about serving and protecting you? It's really not that hard a question to answer. If you have trouble thinking of anything that you've done recently that set aside your self-interest in favor of building someone else up, then one of the two things is true. Either you're so darn humble that you don't even notice when you're serving other people, or you're not serving other people. And it's probably the second thing. And before we wrap up, I want to I make sure that I'm not heaping a load of guilt on anyone because that would completely and utterly miss the point. Because there's a fundamental issue here that we have to get for all of these things that we're considering these next four weeks, and that is you cannot do this. You are incapable of serving others as Christ served you. His standard is a perfect standard, and yet his standard is the standard that he requires of you. So how in the world does that work out? He tells you this is what you must do, and then he tells you you can't do it. It works out very well because you're not supposed to. Galatians 2, verse 20, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So who is it that's doing the serving? It's him. We just have to get out of the way. He is at work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We just have to get out of the way and put both feet into, into his program and not ours. He's going to do his work. You don't even have to worry about your adequacy at all. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 and 6 one of the theme verses of my life, the only thing that makes me able to stand up here. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. It's a very freeing thing when God is your only adequacy and you don't matter. The Christian life is not about debt or burden. When you trusted Jesus as your Savior, He did not pat you on the back and say, Okay, now do as I did and have fun with that. He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit. And you shall find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. You know why the burden that's handed to us by Jesus is easy and light? Because he is the one who bears it. Just as he bore the penalty for our sin. The Christian life isn't about debt or burden or duty. It's about grace and gratitude in response to that grace. Your whole life is a response to the grace that God has lavished upon you in Jesus Christ. He's the one who paid the debt, and he's the one who continually bears your burdens. Your role is simply to gratefully serve in his power. Now, how do you serve in his power instead of your own? People think that's a big mystery. I don't think it's a big mystery. I think you just trust him more than you trust yourself and then you prayerly put both feet into doing what he has assigned. Now, by necessary implication, everything that, that we just said means that if you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, then it, it's of no purpose for you to try to serve others as Christ has served you. Because it's in his power that we serve. If you're here, no matter how, how old you are, if you're here and you do not know where you will spend eternity, then I pray that before you leave, you will take God at his word. You'll believe that you can't take any steps toward God that are meaningful. That you will trust Jesus Christ as the only one who has provided for you to stand righteous and clean in the eyes of God. Unless he washes you, you will have nothing to do with him now and in eternity. I pray that you'll take God at his word, trust Jesus Christ as your savior, and be saved forever. Then, then, you get to be his instrument. And that's the most wonderful thing that you will ever do in this life, is to be the instrument of God. Loving Father, I thank you for this body thank you for the love and the bond that we have with one another in Jesus Christ. I thank you, Father, that you have commissioned us to serve one another as we have been served by you. That's, it's a wonderful assignment. And it's an assignment that you have empowered entirely. Everything, everything that you give to us and everything that you expect from us ultimately comes back to Jesus Christ. He is the, the one who does it. And we respond to you with thanksgiving, with gratitude, with great joy. We thank you, Father, for giving us a purpose for being. And we thank you that that purpose is your honor and your honor alone. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.